We ain't never played no fruit rock, no punk rock. We never wore dresses on stage, put on no paint on our faces, blew up no bombs on stage. We didn't suck off snakes on stage. We didn't wear tight pants and big rings. We didn't puke on stage or throw TVs out the windows. I'd like to think we got in some good licks and played some music that will last and be remembered. That was Levon Helm's statement from his profile in Rolling Stone magazine with Tom Goldsmith, perfectly summarizing his view of his career with the band and where his new direction lay. Levon had been splitting his time between New York and California. He had finally taken up with Sandra Dodd after a rather acrimonious relationship with Libby Titus came crashing down. Dodd and Helm, who had met earlier in 1975, but she had lived in Virginia. Finally, during the last waltz period, she moved to California and lived with Helm at the Miramar Hotel, where he had a bungalow until business around the film, the band, and other businesses was dealt with. As Sandra remembers, quote, Libby found out about me, realized that Levon had a girlfriend, and immediately served support papers on him. He would get up in the morning, stuff wads of contracts and legal paper into a briefcase, and head downtown in his BMW to see the lawyers. With the breakup of his family, Helm did what he knew best, make music. And while the band was all but extinct, Helm continued to tell journalists that he'd keep making music. Moreover, he started putting together a new band, and he moved back east to set up permanently as he recalled i decided to remain in woodstock i love the town and the people and the way of life too much to sell my house and relocate he had eagerly been building his compound in woodstock affectionately called the barn the massive structure featured a music studio rehearsal space television studios and living quarters for his friends and family the goal was to have music flowing at all times, a creative enclave for him and his friends, a grander version of Big Pink and Shangri-La. And Helm wanted to use the space to assemble the best band that he could muster and continue where he left off with the band. It would be a hard challenge after being one of the finest groups musically ever assembled. And Helm did not want to miss. As he tells Dan Gordon of the Poughkeepsie Journal in February of 1977, he wasn't sure whether band members would be able to play on the record, but he would rely on old friends who he had played with before. He also told Gordon that he was still shopping for material for the album. He was interested in writing, but would not force anything, and is quoted as saying, If a tune starts to grow, I will push it. I'll just have to see what happens. First, he recruited Booker T. Jones, one of the most famed musicians, songwriters, and record producers of the 20 and 21st centuries. Jones, a product of Memphis, Tennessee, was born in November of 1944, a child prodigy. He played multiple instruments and as a child worked with famed musicians like David Porter, saxophonist Andrew Love of the Memphis Horns, and singer-songwriter Maurice White of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Jones, from an early age of 16, started with Stax Records. Later, this is where he assembled Booker T and the MGs, when he met the likes of guitarist Steve Cropper, drummer Al Jackson Jr., and later bassist Donald Duck Dunn. With the release of their seminal 1962 album, Green Onions, on Stax Records, Booker T. Jones became one of the most influential names in music. Alongside his band, he spent much of the 60s and 70s recording as the premier backing band for pop stars, including Otis Redding, Stephen Stills, Bill Withers, Willie Nelson, and Rod Stewart. 
Alongside Jones, Helm recruited fellow MG Steve Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn. Cropper, also known as the Colonel, had made a name for himself as one of the finest guitarists of his generations. Born in Willow Springs, Missouri in 1941, he was exposed to black church music that changed his life before moving to Memphis at an early age. Hanging around Stax, he became a record clerk and played with various local bands. When Chip's Woman left Stax, Cropper became an A&R man for the label and became a founding member of Booker T and the MGs. He also sessioned for Otis Redding Jr., as well as Sam and Dave, Rod Stewart, Ringo Starr, Delaney and Bonnie, Mavis Staples, and Leon Russell, and played some of the most memorable guitar parts in popular music. Donald Dunn was born in Memphis in 1941. His father gave him the nickname Duck after watching a Disney cartoon, and he was a lifelong friend of Steve Cropper playing sports together as children. Dunn, noticing Cropper playing with bands, taught himself how to play bass by listening to records. He played in numerous bands leading to regional success, and while he wasn't an original member of the MGs, he quickly joined soon after. His bass groove became part of the stack sound, and he can be heard playing on influential bass lines on Otis Redding's Respect, Albert King's Born Under a Bad Sign, as well as on records by Elvis Presley, Mavis Staples, Joan Baez, John Prine, and Wilson Pickett. Helm was also friends with Mac Rebenack, known as Dr. John, and he was brought in to fill out the roster. As we've explored prior, Dr. John was one of the most influential singers, songwriters, and pianists of the New Orleans music scene. His combination of jazz, blues, funk, and R&B made him a standout. As a player, he was an in-demand session player, gifting his talents to the Rolling Stones' seminal album Exile on Main Street, Van Morrison's A Period of Transition, and Aretha Franklin's Young, Gifted, and Black. Notably, he was a featured guest at the last waltz. But Helm didn't stop there. He added a few more names to the band. Famed guitarist Fred Carter Jr. was added to the roster. Remember, Carter was a member of the Hawks and was seminal to the early career of Robbie Robertson. Carter had gotten his professional start in the 50s when he played with and became friends with many famed country artists, such as Farron Young, Johnny Horton, and Jim Reeves. He also met Roy Orbison, Carter joined his band and moved to Hollywood with him for a period. He was also lifelong friends with Conway Twitty and toured with him numerous times. And by the late 60s, he had settled down in Nashville and became part of the Nashville A-Team, a set of key players that were influential during the period and played on most every important pop record, from Simon and Garfunkel, Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, to Wailing Jennings, George Jones and Dolly Parton. Paul Butterfield was a must for Levon Helm when putting together the RCO All-Stars. A guest at the last waltz and a longtime friend of the band, Butterfield was born in December of 1942 in Chicago. After training as a classical flautist, he found the blues harmonica and was encouraged by Muddy Waters to play. He then formed the Paul Butterfield Blues Band in 1963, leading to success and popularity. Butterfield played both at the Monterey Pop Festival and Woodstock and did session work for Muddy Waters, Bonnie Raitt, Peter, Paul and Mary, and Eric Clapton, all on his way to becoming one of the most noted innovators of the blues harp. And it wouldn't be a Helm project without horns. Thus, Helm recruited band regulars Howard Johnson, who also arranged the horn section, alongside Saturday Night Live and band favorites 
Alan Rubin, Tom Malone, and Lou Marini. Three backup singers that were superb were included, including Amaretta Marks, Jeanette Baker, and John Flamingo. Marks had worked with Jimi Hendrix, Baker and Flamingo had performed as a duo prior, and Helm and Glover also put together a stellar cast of engineers over the course of the project as they recorded from coast to coast. Ed Anderson was brought in, who was no stranger to Helm. He had worked on material from the band's 1975 album, Northern Lights, Southern Cross, and with George Harrison and Neil Diamond. Rick Ash was an assistant editor on The Last Waltz and had gotten the promotion with the RCO All-Stars record. Michael Boshears worked with Wilson Pickett and Little Feet. Tim Kramer on The Last Waltz as well with Neil Diamond and Rick Danko on his solo album. Lanky Lindstrad had worked with Isaac Hayes and Buddy Rich. Eddie Offord had worked in the progressive rock world with Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, as well as various other engineers included in the project, including Leslie Jones, Paul Barry, Ray Perrette, Larry Samuels, and Jim Sharp. With a band of remarkable players assembled, the name came soon after. Helm had named the group the RCO All-Stars, the RCO standing for Our Company, or the R Company, or the Our Company All-Stars, a term in which he had crafted and decided reflected his current project. Booker T. Jones, who had played keyboard, once noted that the RCO All-Stars represented a, quote, consortium of musical styles and backgrounds drawn from each of the players who were raised up and down the Mississippi River. This new powerhouse unit needed a home. Helm then began approaching a recording contract. He was hot coming off the last waltz. Everyone in a piece of the band, and he had a fair share of suitors. Jerry Rubenstein of ABC Records was the winner. Rubenstein, a New Yorker, entered the music world as a business manager finding himself clients including Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Joni Mitchell, The Eagles, and David Geffen. Jay Lasker, who had owned Dunhill Records and merged with ABC Records in the early 70s, left and Rubenstein, seen as a bright up-and-comer, succeeded him. Rubenstein was in charge of reviving the ailing music division and Levon Helm was one on his list of artists to help achieve that success. On January 13, 1977, Helm signed a three-record deal with ABC at his home in Woodstock, New York, surrounded by members of the Our Company All-Stars and locals from Woodstock. According to the Arkansas Gazette, he said upon signing, quote, Now we'll let him hear what they bought. A celebration followed with Rubenstein in tow. Helm performed various songs off the upcoming album with his new group. For recording personnel and locals, that night was not without its guests, including Ronnie Hawkins, who came down from Canada working on a new album, John Sebastian was also in attendance. The Arkansas Gazette mentions that he was to perform on the new Helm album and worked with him on a theme song for an upcoming comedy television series. The night went into the early morning with plenty of food, dancing, and entertainment all taking place at Levon's newly built beautiful compound. With the business sorted and the band assembled, Helm had to dive into recording his first solo record. The dynamics were different. He no longer needed to vie for the power as he had in the later days of the band. He was now in control. Recording took place in two spots, one in Helm's RCO Studios in Woodstock, New York, with main engineer Eddie Offord recording Washerwoman, A Mood I Was In, Blue So Bad, Milk Cow Boogie, and Rain Down Tears, before heading west to Shangri-La in Malibu, California, and recording You Got Me, Havana Moon, That's My Home, The Tie That Binds, and Sing Sing Sing. 
10 songs in total, five recorded in each respective location. The album begins with Washerwoman, a song penned and originally titled Wash Mama Wash by Dr. John and offered to help for recording. Originally presented by Dr. John in his 1970 album Remedies, as David Gansher said in his review of the album in Rolling Stone in June of 1970, quote, Wash Mama Wash is great, about a funky washerwoman who drinks too much and blows the family food money, playing the numbers. The lyrics are just as funky as the subject, and his interpretation of the song was the perfect recipe for Helm, who always brought the southern funky New Orleans flair to the band's music. Wash your woman, I know you're tired of taking in clothes, dollar day. Know your back is hurting, and that's for sweaty. Been bending over half of the day. And while Dr. John's version is deep fried funk, it's a lot looser and laid back compared to Helms, which opens it up and pounds the rhythm harder, faster, and more bombastically, making sense for the eventual album opener. You'll notice that Helms' version brings in the horns right from the beginning and continues throughout the duration of the track where John's version had horns briefly towards the end. The harmonica is also present, really amping the energy. The guitar is also quite different and distinct, While the guitar doesn't necessarily have a traditional solo, a solo-like motif is brought in throughout the chorus. While the lyrics aren't the main component of what makes the song excellent, how Dr. John paints the characters is akin to songs in the band's catalog that Helm would sing and bring his sensibilities to, something like Up on Cripple Creek, featuring down-and-out characters or blue-collar characters is found in both songs, in this case, a woman who cleans clothes for a living on little pay. However, the story is also unfolding from the perspective of someone playing music, and music is the medicine to soothe the working man or woman's blues. Again, another theme that Helm visits in many songs. second sequence song, The Tie That Binds, is a co-write 
between Dr. John and Bobby Charles. Charles, who had appeared at the last waltz, was working closely with Danko at the time. Not only had Danko co-produced his 1972 album, but Charles was working with Danko on his first solo release at the same time as Helm. The tie that binds tells the story of a man who found out his woman had cheated on him. He is distraught at her deceitfulness. Fairly standard fare that features the chorus, Let's not break the tie that binds. Let's not lose our peace of mind. You know that I really love you, darling, but you're just too much to deal with at this time. Interestingly, the phrase, the ties that bind, which often refers to inseparable love or a close friendship, comes from a title of a Christian hymn written in 1782 entitled, Blessed Be the Ties That Bind. John Fawcett, the author, an English theologian and preacher, wrote the hymn after an experience of returning to a church that was loyal to him, versus moving to a parish with a bigger salary and more amenities. The hymn begins with, quote, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love, the fellowship of kindred minds. While the song isn't religious in nature, the biblical infusion is something that is consistent in Helm's work from his early days as a musician until the day he died. Now, musically, the song begins with a wonderful introduction, a descending pattern of harmonica, keys, and guitar before it releases into a laid-back groove. Butterfield's signature harmonica is on full display, wailing as if the sounds of the harp is the voice of the main character. The sparse blues is aided wonderfully by the smooth guitar sound of Steve Cropper. The light piano interplays with the rather melodic bass from Duck Dunn, who never rushes or plays too busily. Overly, what is expertly done in the tie that binds, that won't get the attention most, is how there's plenty going on musically in the song. The harmonica, the drums, the bass, the piano, several guitars, and even the organ. They aren't overly layered, creating one saturated sound, but rather each play to each other, each instrument picking the right place to add their flair.
Next, we are offered You Got Me, a song that was written by Booker T. Jones. Helm's rendition offers us something different from the typical fare we come to expect. A lush but restrained string arrangement is presented throughout the song, and this is paired with a rather groovy but simple rhythm section from Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper and Fred Carter Jr. Helm's drums are ever-present. Helm's drums are ever-present, damp, muted, and precisely there to give the song a heartbeat. The soft nature of the song is something I would never expect from Helm, but is a welcome surprise. His vocal is on display here, not hidden behind any studio trickery. The dry vocal is Helm really feeling it, reaching for notes he typically doesn't go for. You Got Me also has two wonderful and different guitar solo sections that are elegant and tasteful, and never too showy. Lyrically, there isn't much to be left to interpretation here. It's a simple love song, or rather, a song of lust. While Helm's rendition is laid back and bluesy, Booker T. Jones would go on to release his version of the song three years later in 1980, coming to life as a completely different number. A funky disco hit with a biting guitar, flashy drums, light brass, and several doo-wop harmony vocals. It couldn't be much further from Helm's version. Blue So Bad is the fourth track on the album, the only writing credit from Helm on an album bolstered by writing from his peers. And Levon's number isn't any lesser. The song is deceptively simple, 
Blues is a hallowed ground for Helm, where he found home in most cases, and he puts it to best use in a rootsy blues number. The sparse but rich song has lyrics that you can really let steep. One does not have to wander very far to understand where some of the words Helm speaks come from. With lyrical passages like, I try to drown him in drink, but what do you think? The blues can swim, they don't sink. There's despair there. As writer Nick DiRizio states in his analysis of Blue So Bad, quote, Like the muddy rivulets of the Mississippi backwash, there's a darker undertow. Levon Helm tries to drown his blues there, only to find that they just won't sink. He tries to light them aflame too, but they won't burn either. There's only smoke. You could also see that Blue So Bad as a way for Helm to release his feelings about the dismemberment of the band. Helm moved with speed and vigor, assembling a new group to pick up where he left off, but there must have been moments of reflecting. Leaving something behind you spent the better part of two decades with takes time to reside in your mind. And musically, the song is built around a funky blues guitar riff that is helped along by Butterfield's harmonica. The piano and organ poke through for the ascension and the descending runs at the end of each chorus. The bass is laid back in the mix, but that doesn't mean Duck Dunn doesn't show why he's one of the best bassists who ever picked up the instrument. The song also features a great and gritty harmonica solo from Butterfield, which is tied together and held by Levon Helm's drumming. Punchy and right in the pocket, Eddie Offord, who engineered the album, really captured Helm's drumming so well. Sing, 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 Let's Make a Better World is the only song on the album that features Helm's former bandmates, and maybe a bit of a surprise for some. Garth Hudson occupies the accordion, and Robbie Robertson is featured on lead electric guitar. Though, before we dig into the music, Sing 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 was originally written by Earl King. Known as a singer, guitarist, and songwriter, most active in the blues music sphere, a composer of blues standards, such as Come On, covered by Jimi Hendrix, Freddie King, and Stevie Ray Vaughan, and Big Chief, recorded by Professor Longhair. He was an important figure in the New Orleans R&B movement. Sing 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 was originally released by Dr. John in 1974 on his album Decisively Bonnaroo which was produced by Alan Toussaint. Helm was a fan of the number and connected with the New Orleans sound and flair. Sing 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 is one of the more produced numbers on the album as well that features a string arrangement that includes players like Jesse Ehrlich, who played strings for Elvis Presley, John Denver, and Ray Charles, Louis Kievman, who primarily was a viola player, 
for the likes of Glenn Campbell, Frank Sinatra, Ray Charles, and Sid Sharp, who had worked with Paul McCartney in Wings, as well as Warren Zevon. And last, William Kersich, who had worked with Buck Owens, Sam Cooke, and John Baez. Alongside the strings was baritone saxophone player Charles Miller, who was in the band War. The cacophony of strings and horns of Howard Johnson, Alan Rubin, Bones Malone, and Lou Marini bring the song a real funk that you can't help but dance to. Now, Robbie and Levon's personal Cold War afforded them moments during the mid to late 70s and a few interactions. Resentments were placed aside, at least long enough for Robertson to offer his crunchy lead licks to Sing Sing Sing. Hudson, who enjoyed many more fruitful years with the band, is also playing the accordion. Robertson and Garth trade off in the solo section, bringing the bite and the funk. Sing 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 brings the same jubilant joy that you can that you can find in the band's Life is a Carnival and remains a highlight of the album and a song primed for live renditions when the Our Company All-Stars toured in 1977 and 1978. It's also uplifting and somewhat political in nature, a shift for Helm. Not that the band didn't provoke thoughts on politics from time to time, but Sing 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 is a blatant representation of political ideology with the lines like, Society has no priority. We're all one part of a whole. When people scream and shout, you have to hear them out. Everyone is a beautiful soul. Ultimately, this song encompasses what Helm was trying to build in Woodstock, which was a journey that continued until he passed away. Building a community where everyone is welcome, providing folks with a refuge from the world and a positive, and a positive space for music and entertainment. Next is Milk Cow Boogie, a straight-fire blues number. Written and originally recorded by Kokomo Arnold in September of 1934 under the title Milk Cow Blues, the song has remained a consistent cover with various arrangements for decades, most popular in the blues, western swing, and rock idioms. 
Perhaps the most famous version is Elvis Presley's, released in 1954, but Willie Nelson also has a version he had performed on occasion. Here's a little taste of Elvis's. With Hell's version, the arrangement is quite different from the original and Presley's version, who made it quite famous. Presley does indeed pick the number up in a rockabilly fashion, but to truly understand the title change, Helm picked the number up and creates a cutting blues funk that you have to come to expect with Helm in the RCO All-Stars. You can hear Helm utter, come on, as the band jumps into the number. Everything about it works remarkably well. The barrel room piano is frantic, the keys pulsating, the organ firing away. This is paired with Butterfield's harmonica blistering, and the horn arrangement is bombastic but simultaneously delicate in parts. A lot of things are happening in this arrangement, but again, it's never too busy. The solo section and the end of the song is a harmonica solo, I guess, but it's essentially a long jam. Helm behind the skins bringing the whole piece back together you can also feel him providing a jovial energy as if he's smiling and telling his bandmates in the studio to keep pushing it and this number is remarkable in its iteration and helm would continue to make it a particularly regular number in his sets including with the band in the 1980s Rain Down Tears was brought to Helm by Henry Glover, who had written the song with songwriting friend Rudy Toombs, who was famed for several songs in the blues, R&B, and country sphere. It was first released as a B-side in 1959 by Hank Ballard. Ballard was the lead vocalist of the Midnighters and one of the first rock and roll artists to emerge in the early 1950s. He played an integral part in developing the genre. Ballard, inspired by singing cowboys like Gene Autry, had a dramatic flair to his voice that was quite distinctive. While Helm's version doesn't feature the dramatic voicings of Ballard's, he instead supplements it with the blue-collar charm that is his specialty. 
There's also more funk and sleaze with the addition of the horn arrangement and harmonica. Helm's vocal is also doubled, seemingly by his own dubbed harmony, but it could also be Dr. John and or Paul Butterfield, who often sang harmony as well. It's interesting, while the tempo is relatively shared between the original and Helm's version, the feeling and the mood could not be any more different. A simple blues number, there isn't a verse-chorus pop structure, but rather repetition when Helm utters out the lines, it's going to rain down tears, rain down tears. You'll need a shelter somewhere, somewhere. You can really feel it as he utters those words. Overall, the mood is expertly crafted. Duck Dunn's bass alongside the brass holding that low end down. Great motifs and attitude from the saxophone. Sorrow from the harmonica and the small biting riffing of a guitar that combines to create a perfect head bobbing experience. Next, a mood I was in was offered to the group by Fred Carter Jr. Oftentimes, he was not a composer, but rather known for his legendary guitar chops. A mood I was in has the feel of a classic country blues song. Originally recorded in 1969 by Bobby Bridger, a cult figure in the country and folk circles. Carter also played on the original. And Helm and Co. give a new breath of air and energy to the song, creating a beautiful layered sonic tapestry. You can't talk about a mood I was in without 
discussing the wonderful understated solo by Carter Jr., you can always admire great playing, especially something that isn't showboating, something that Helm cherished above all else. Additionally, there's wonderful playing from the rest of the group. Duck Dunn provides a solid bass line alongside Helm's drums, and the electric piano playing dances delicately over the rhythm. Juxtaposing Paul Butterfield's harmonica, the melodies never attack each other, but are in simpatico. Helm provides a spirited vocal and is joined in the chorus in harmony. While the harmony can't stack up against his previous work with the band, few acts could, it provides a nice extra little bit of energy. The lyrics are also worth talking about. Carter Jr. has some solid prose. In a song about a potentially jilted lover, Carter Jr. pens the opening line, You know she was only a mood I was in. The main conceit of the song, and a line that is repeated throughout. The bit of wordplay is clever, and the song features other lines that are quite painterly in their imagination, like a soft puff of cotton, a willful perfume, a beautiful flower that was never to bloom, and beautiful flower that took me away, a beautiful fragrance that made my day. Carter doesn't care about crafting the perfect rhyme per se, but rather creating a feeling and the use of repetition, especially the word beautiful, crafting a rather unorthodox but stunning song. The second last number on the album is Havana Moon, which was originally written and performed by Chuck Berry. Released as the B-side on Chess Records in 1956, Havana Moon is Berry's story of a Cuban woman missing an American woman. It came from playing Nat King Cole's Calypso Blues when Berry was still working up the ranks at the St. Louis Cosmopolitan Club at a time when Latin rhythms were popular. Barry's song, while perhaps not one of his biggest hits, really shows the prowess of the writer that he was. His blending of regional influences provides a summary pleasantness. Juxtaposed, I understand Helm's desire to cover the wonderful song. However, it may be really the only miss on the album, untypical of Helm's general tendency of the era, the track is a little overproduced. Let's begin with the guitars. The delicate and balanced pastiche that Barry often musters is lost here. Even the drums paired with the guitar and other exotic percussion by Booker T. Jones are just a little too much on the nose.
The instrumentation isn't helped by Helm's vocals. Nothing is technically wrong with it, but the effects Aladdin vocal with the garish backup harmony response on the course is too cheesy to be taken seriously. It's certainly possible that Helm didn't take the track itself too seriously either, but objectively, it doesn't really fit in with the rest of the album overly well. Studio trickery he typically shuddered is too present. And the last track on the record is an arrangement of That's My Home, the classic R&B track. Arranged by Helm and Dr. John, the track works on a symbolic level to close the album, but the beautiful arrangement features a glorious mixture of strings, horns, and serene background vocals. One thing to note is how easily this could be overproduced for the era, something that may have steeped into a few previous numbers, like Havana Moon, but there is a delicate balance here, handled with care. Again, like most blues numbers, it skips the typical verse-chorus structure. Rather, it has a repeating line at the end of each verse. A beautiful series of solos also occupy the song. First, a great guitar solo, slightly searing and overdriven, followed by the piano. This is all backed by a wonderful rhythm section of Helm's drums and Duck Dunn's bass. And juxtaposed to the introduction of the album in Washerwoman, the same components are there, but Helm is opting to ride the album out on a more down-tempo, soothing number. A potential metaphor here. The audience could feel uncertain of the post-band breakup, where Helm is trying to provide a cozy refuge with the RCO All-Stars, saying, you have a new home with familiar music, but fresh enough to excite.
With the album tracks completed, mixing and mastering happened at ABC Studios in Hollywood, California. The beautiful album artwork that features Helms Barn with an illustration of the RCO All-Stars was done by art director Frank Mulvey with designs from Tim Bryant in Gribbit. The back featured each band member's photo in a baseball card styling and photograph and photography done by Fred Valentine, Melanie Neeson, and CeCe Sebastian. Helm decided to throw an all-day party at his home to showcase new material from the album, and all of the top ABC brass were present, from Vice President of A&R Mark Mayerson, Elaine Corlett, who headed up Artist Development, Artist Relations Director Barbara Harris, Head of PR Shelley Sullivan, Barry Grief, who headed up Creative Services, and several other staffers. Tom Kokorin and Bob Harris of the Old Grey Whistle Test, the British Rock Show, were also present. The event brought in old friend and mentor Ronnie Hawkins, former band manager Albert Grossman, Helm's family, including Diamond Helm and Robbie Robertson. The event included a barbecue lunch and dinner, an hour-long fireworks display, and a performance from the RCO All-Stars. The event hosted over 100 people and was a massive success. ABC released the album, Levon Helm and the RCO All-Stars, in late October 77, just in time for the holiday season, with a strong campaign around Helm's stardom from the band, in a marketing slogan, quote, it's a whole new ball game, playing on the baseball card and all-star motif. The group was, for all purposes, a supergroup. So ABC made sure to let everyone know that this team was a group of all-stars, saying, there's not a stronger team of rock superstars anywhere. Hear them in action on their premier ABC album. In reflecting on his work with the all-stars, Helm confided, quote, it felt strength in numbers. It's just a hell of a lot more fun to cut up anything with your friends no matter how good or bad you do it by yourself. In fact, he added, the better it is by yourself, the more lonesome it is. Generally, the reviews for Levon Helm and the RCO All-Stars were positive. On the Christmas Day issue of the Sarasota Herald Tribute, Joe McNally said of the album, quote, Levon Helm's album should send blues fans into ecstasy they periodically get sent into. While Kit Ratchless for Rolling Stone was impressed that the ensemble group could work so well together, saying... Unlike most other gatherings, the group goes after and actually achieves an ensemble sound. No grandstanding, no egos flashing. In the best R&B tradition, they emphasize fills over solos, which are kept short and to the point. Section work is precise, the choice of covers imaginative. Though Ratchelis hesitates to go further, after Helm's tumultuous last few years, he says, Tension, exuberance, and drama. The band behaves as if they were at a formal dinner party. Steve Pond for the Los Angeles Times states in his review, Helm's howling, drawl voice is in fine shape. He seems to be having a good time. Though Pond goes on to state, we have every right to expect something more challenging and more stimulating from an artist of his caliber. And writer Alan J. Moore said, the songs are tight, cooking, and energetic, and the level of skill is quite high. The slow blues cuts are the best showcase for Helm. Helm later told the pop life writer John Rockwell, as far as I'm concerned, we're going to play forever. We've sort of worked it out amongst ourselves to reserve whatever producing and recording talents we have for one another. Everybody's got some irons in the fire, but this seems to be fresh and maybe the most rewarding if we can get it geared up. The level of optimism was something that Helm strived for coming off of several years of dour energy in the band. The RCO All-Stars inception was a continuation of the band for Helm in many ways and it filled the void. While recording and releasing the album was a smooth and joyful process, it wouldn't be long before the harsher realities of the world set in. Touring troubles, health troubles, scheduling conflicts all began to creep into the mix. 
Would Helm now, as a band leader, once more be able to juggle the trials and tribulations of a rock and roll band? Thank you for listening to The Band A History. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed doing it. I apologize for the long wait between episodes. A bunch of life stuff happened. Uh, When you are somebody that says yes to too many things, uh, some of the things that you enjoy doing, including the podcast, get left behind. But uh, this episode was very fun to do. Uh, We're entering an interesting period. This is the period in which, from this point forward, I really wanted to make the podcast for. You know, there's plenty of information out there and resources for the band um, to some degree. And I definitely want to fill in some of the uh, darker areas and and highlight some of the members that are underrepresented joining the band era. But this period of uh, post-original lineup band was something that I was very interested in exploring. And uh, I had to start with the RCO All-Stars and and this first Leave on Helm's Soul album as it's one of my favorite albums. Um, And some of the subsequent touring and trials and tribulations that Helm faced with this group uh, going forward is something that I was very interested in. Um, And there's some information out there about this, but I really tried to hopefully fill in a lot of it for you um, about some of these songs, about some of the versions and uh, or original versions or, you know, covers, etc. and comparing and contrasting. So I really hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, It was really a really pleasure for me to do it. Um, So if you're interested in following the band, uh, a history on social media, we're everywhere. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at The Band Podcast. Come say hi. Uh, we oftentimes have discussions. I share content there, photos, videos, etc. Always ask some unique questions on Twitter and get some good responses. So definitely check that out. Uh, but, you know, we also have a lot of wonderful supporters of the show that support monetarily through our Patreon. And the show wouldn't be made without them from hosting Uh, the show and uh, buying equipment and maintaining services and stuff it's all costs money and it comes out of my pocket and a lot of wonderful people are helping make that doable so if you go to patreon.com slash the band of history you can sign up to become a patron Uh, there's different tiers uh, for amounts of money and it's pretty awesome Uh, you get bonus materials early access to things Uh, And we have a small but great community over there. So go check out some of the perks and consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash the band history. So that's that's it for this week or maybe this month. I shouldn't say this week. I don't know if I'll have an episode next week. But uh, until I see you next, I hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll catch you on the next one. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> I'm dead. 
From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.